it really is about how we all live together collectively and how can we live, create ways for people to be more included, empowered, and to have access to resources that people can use to transform their lives. I think that's my, when I think about what makes a city, it's a place that draws people. A lot of the times it's people who, who migrate there, who are drawn and they have a specific aspiration or a dream, whether it's crossing, you know, moving from a different part of the country or, or seeking to build a whole new life as an immigrant or a refugee. It's about going to a place that is going to be a foundation for a different version of yourself and that, and that you can continuously evolve and change as you interact with people and get access to resources. So it's almost like a change machine. <laughs> Can't we just redesign the systems that don't work? The people I'm having the chance to converse with in different parts of the world are imagining new systems, new collaborations. They're imagining a new world. Welcome to Design Influence. I'm Isabel Swiderski. Adriana Valdes-Young is an urban design researcher and strategist based in New York City. Her perspectives on cities and how we live together seem particularly relevant in a time where our collective notions of private and public spaces have shifted, where the global pandemic has meant that for the privileged who can perform their work remotely, staying safe has been synonymous with staying home. How might we reimagine and co-create streets, spaces, and cities to help them fulfill their potential as the change machines Adriana knows they can be. I started my career just really um, accidentally, almost I was volunteering teaching English as a second language when I was an undergraduate at Brown. So I was working in Providence, Rhode Island. And that city has a very significant immigrant and refugee population, mostly from Central America, from the, the wars in the 80s. And I was always very interested. My mother is from Venezuela. My father is Chinese, but grew up in Hawaii. So we have different immigration stories on different sides of the family. And I, have, I was always interested in trying to make a connection and understand what the um, contemporary immigrant and refugee experience was. And I was studying Latin American history at the time. So I was really, I'm sure you've experienced this maybe in, in, um, in your studies too, where you, you reach a point where you don't want to intellectualize things anymore. You want to make a connection with the lived experience, right? Mm -hmm. So I was volunteering teaching English as a second language. And I thought, well, there's so much more that can be done here. We, my job cannot just be to teach grammar and you know, basic vocabulary. A lot of my students were coming in and having difficulty at work, feel, not having um, the right safety equipment if they're working in a factory, experiencing injuries, not knowing what their rights were, um, being nervous about going to the DMV and taking a driver's test, not being able to advocate for their children and understand the education system, which is very different in the United States, which relies on a lot of parent advocacy. It's a very unique um, thing about the um, American education system, right? The PTA, all these systems. And, and it requires having a, not just speaking the language, but understanding that you have a voice, which is different. It's a higher level of empowerment, right? An agency. And so I worked with a, some other students from Brown and we put together this new way of delivering education that was all about language as a tool for civic engagement. And so that it became a school 
and it served hundreds of immigrant and refugee families, um, specifically reaching out to the undocumented immigrant community. There's a lot of services that you can apply for if you are official refugee and you have a certain status to get vouchers to participate in different public service programs. But if you're undocumented, then those are not available to you. Um, so it worked specifically in, in one neighborhood, worked closely with different community organizations and churches. And um, the school ran for 19 years. It, wow. it sadly closed under the Trump administration where there was a lot more pressure on organizations to keep data on people who are using their services. And there wasn't an ability to guarantee people's safety in this environment, sadly. Um, I'm, I'm so happy that it was able to sustain itself for so long. And it was truly an organization that was run in collaboration with, um, with volunteers and, and the learners themselves. And so that's when I discovered that there is whatever service you see in the city, there's another way of doing it that's more inclusive, that comes from a place of truly empowering people, not making people dependent or feel like they have to um, kind of conform to whatever is being served. And I think that as a privileged person with an Ivy League education, I've, I've always known that, you know, reinvent myself, reinvent um, how I do my work, what projects I do, put different disciplines together. And I think that that's a privilege that's, it's, it's very limited. And I, I've always been interested in making, extending that way of living and thinking of um, just innovation and creativity to every sector and to all, all peoples. I didn't really have to come up with any good ideas. <laughs> all the ideas existed already in the community. You just have to elevate, listen, pay attention and elevate those voices and go with what is already working and not try to impose top-down models. And I think that's where I was able to make the connection then with urban planning and urban design, which has traditionally been a very top-down discipline. So how do you engage now with people? Obviously, this project is a very concrete example of self-directed you know, yeah. observation and engagement with people in your work currently or even in your work previously when you were working with uh, data for cities. Yeah. How, do you, how do you engage with folks? And, and to your point, how do you elevate voices to co-create the, the, the spaces we share? Yeah, I think that that's the, the beauty of um, human-centered design, which is something that you work in too. Um, and I think we have to go beyond that, right? There's Human-centered design is wonderful. So it's about putting people who are using the service or who have a specific problem or, or are going to benefit from the ultimate design outcome, putting their perspectives and their lives at the center of, of, of the design process, right? But I think that we have to go, what I've tried to do is go beyond that. And I think because there has been so much power and top-down authority from urban planning and urban design as a, as a discipline and, and from the government too, planning councils, there's a lot of systems that are, are consciously and, and or not really trying to impose an uh, agenda and are very oppressive, right? So the, one of the projects I worked on that I, I feel like helped me kind of crystallize this approach was when I was at the London School of Economics and I was part of a group, a research group on super diverse streets. And I picked a street <laughs> with, my, with my team of um, in South London that was predominantly um, populated by immigrants and refugee communities and businesses, a lot of businesses. Mm -hmm. It was super dense. And was so, where the, the most interesting part of it is that the, 
the city and the local council had identified it as the street that was in need of all this renovation and design intervention that um, they needed to restore some of the old historic buildings and take down some of the storefronts that were blocking some of the you know the historic buildings and it was um, seen there was all this language about it as a failed street and a failed system right and even overtly saying that the street needed to become more english it's amazing um, and i think it's very important to talk about especially in this moment how much overt racism not even hi hidden in not even hidden in plain sight just in mm -hmm. plain language um overtly as a project to make this street less less non-english looking Other, yes mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um so it was it was pure there was a lot of uh, motivation to change the aesthetics of this street and so i was really motivated to document and create an alternative visual language of success and I can't do that. I can just, <laughs> I can work with the people who are there and create a way for the authorities to experience the street from their perspective, because it's not enough just to run the numbers. You know, that, that um, street had, you know, over 200 businesses and had one of the lowest vacancy rates in London, of, uh, you know, in terms of high streets. The beautiful thing about that street is that there was no one dominant ethnic group and it. it had this negative stigma attached to it as quote unquote little Lagos. It had, there was this idea that it was mostly Nigerian and there was a lot of crime there and betting and, you know, a lot of nefarious activity going on. And then when we took the time, and I remember Nicolas was my architecture um, partner on this project, we took, uh, you know, I think two or three days and we visited every single of these 230 shops and we asked people, what languages they spoke, not where they were from, but what languages they spoke, how did they get to work? And we started to create this portrait of people who are coming from all over London. And uh, I think the majority of people spoke more than four languages. I mean, it was amazing. And um, comparing that to the researchers or any, if you look at you know, like any of the academic staff at any of these institutions or in, in the city planning departments, the the amount of knowledge that was on this street was so incredible and they had created this very interesting system not violating any planning regulations or any um, violations of their lease but they had created this way of um, subdividing spaces and creating up you know up to seven businesses in one space and wow. so they created this web of of super resilience and there was no need, you know, the city had organized these design charrettes and I remember um, some specific corporations and architecture firms were involved and they were trying to get these like put together these really interesting charrettes and um, create ideas for a cultural quarter, an innovation, innovation center or something to quote unquote fix this street. The, the problem is not that there's a lack of creativity or a lack of ideas. Right. You just don't know how to look. You don't know how to look and, and you listen. don't know how to yes. listen. And mm -hmm. I remember having a conversation with one of the um, representatives for the from the local council. And she said, I, I was telling her about this research and explaining to her all these amazing systems that had been set up for resilience and, um, and innovation. And she said, 
well, what do they want? What do these people want? I thought, you know what? That's the wrong question to ask. What do we want? Like we're, we're all living, we're all Londoners. We're, we're living in the same city, right? Mm -hmm. And so already setting up that binary of those people over there. And first of all, she represents that district. So that's part of her right, right. community, but already that mindset of what, what do they want? And it was different from what she wanted. The problem is that people don't really want to look, they don't want to listen to people who, are, who have the authority, right, in, in, in planning and, and local government. They don't want to look, they don't want to listen. Um, and maybe they're afraid. You know, I don't think that this councilwoman was a bad person. I think she didn't have the, the tools. She was intimidated or afraid. And so people have to get over this fear and stop othering the people who are coming up with all these amazing ways to thrive. And they are operating under so many constraints and they're able to create all of these um, systems that work without any government assistance. You teach design yeah. research at Parsons. Yeah. And, and so just tying into this project or, or other projects, what do you think that human-centered design and, and design research can teach us in this moment, specifically yeah. where finally it seems there's an opportunity to have a more frank and direct conversation about systemic racism, yeah. about inequality, and understanding that those systems have been designed and, and willfully put in place. Yeah. So what can design teach us yeah. in this moment? I think that there's, there's a couple ways to think about it. One is to think about human-centered design is only, I see it only as this, um, as the first step. It's, it's one tool, right? And mm -hmm. it can help break down the privilege and the hierarchy that has been established, that has been just entrenched in, in design in the design industry in, in general, right? And away from the cult personality and the, like the, the reverence of the creative genius, right? We have to break that apart. And everybody is a designer. Everybody is designing all the time, but that's not enough, <laughs> right? That's, that's so easy to say. And empathy, empathy, which had a big moment in human-centered design, um, you know, and, and over the last 10 years, I don't know if you've I'm sure you've read so many articles about how empathy is so important. And it's like, well, yes, except we're not very good at it, which, except for, which is it's why not, it's, yeah. it's very difficult to uh, have a lot of people uh, teaching design thinking or human-centered design and saying step two is empathy. It's like, yeah. it's, it's not Go. a step. It's, yeah. it's not a step. <laughs> and, and, and also realizing that part of the challenges that we have are not because of our willful lack of empathy, but yeah. because we are built to be blind to our own biases and yeah. to no, it's true. and we br we constantly bring in our own life experience when sh we should be listening yeah. uh, and and learning as as you were saying but, yeah. but so 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 coming back to to that yeah. so em empathy yes is is absolutely a, a crucial part of it but but in reality or in in practice how does that manifest yeah it's not enough i think it's just again it's just a starting point and i think when i'm teaching design research the thing that i'm actually doing is i'm helping working very intensely and and individually with each person to break down their internal their their subconscious biases right a lot of the process of 
of teaching how to do research is teaching people to see and to question and not to be satisfied, never to be satisfied. A lot of my students will, they'll have a lot of information, but they don't have insights yet or actually knowledge or wisdom. And I think that's the, the, the real challenge that I've seen teaching now is that we have access to a plethora. It's, it's very easy to do, quote, like to do research. People think that they're doing research by, do, by, by reading articles. And I, and I have to actually, I find myself actually being a lot stricter <laughs> with students lately and actually <laughs> telling them you're not allowed to read the internet anymore. This doesn't count. You have to, and setting really like strict specific parameters, you have to spend 24 hours in the community that you are trying to design for and i want you to be there from two o'clock in the morning till six o'clock in the morning then you take you know 24 i want you to be there at every moment and and talk to people and not make any assumptions and i'm going to specifically force you <laughs> to throw out your first three ideas because they're going to be terrible <laughs> right you know? Yeah. And you have to test them then again, at least three times. And the idea still could be terrible. Um, but I'm, you know what, maybe it's humility is maybe the more important quality than empathy, right? Because empathy gives this, this false sense of, okay, I'm there with you. I, I'm, ex I'm imagining what you're experiencing. But if you're imagining it from a place of superiority and with from some place in your heart where you think you already know the answer, then it's, it's useless. Mm -hmm. So maybe what and it I, does entail almost saying that you're, you're the one giving the empathy that again, in a, in a way it comes from you as opposed yeah. to observing and, and wanting to learn, but it's a very difficult thing to, to, to do, isn't it? I mean, I, you know, you, you work with startups as, as do I, and, and I think, one of the biggest hurdles is is in customer discovery because yeah. people are frightened to your point uh, yeah. to talk to people and to be wrong and to and to be told that the solution that we've imagined is 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 not at all the right one or not quite the right yeah. one then what does inclusivity mean to you i think i don't get to decide <laughs> you know i think that's i don't i think that's what i've been trying to trying to let myself discover and be okay with which is there are no firm answers for these and no firm parameters like we're never going to have this perfect uh, matrix or success metrics for what is inclusive design or not i think what i've been reading about lately um, especially with the resurgence of just confronting the systemic racial injustice that has been part of our our the u.s for centuries is that people already have, I think I don't get to answer that question. I think people already have communities of color and have already are designing, are designing solutions all the time. And they get, they should decide what is inclusive. I, the only thing that I come, that comes to mind for me is that, is it inclusion that we need to be thinking about or is it, is it fairness? You know, like, is it equality? Is it justice? Because, mm -hmm. When we, when, when the city is designing, whether it's a physical structure or a policy, would the person who's designing that policy want to be subject to that policy or the person who's designing that public housing, would they want to live there? Are they going to switch their apartment wherever they live or their house for that apartment? And I think if they can answer yes, then that's, 
that's inclusion in a way. It's not, do you know what I mean? Right. Yes. Yes, absolutely. W- would you accept that? Is that, is that something that we can, that you would be able to, that everyone would be able to live with? We can't have, it's almost like we can't have these conversations. We have to get to work and then, and, and just try and test and see and give people authority to override how things have been going, you know? You brought housing up. One of the things that's, that's very evident in this crisis is that underhoused people uh, or folks who are in high density uh, buildings or who are homeless, it, it creates a public health crisis that mm-hmm. is constant. And so how do we address that? And, and what are ways to reimagine how we view cities and how we view this using housing as a weapon of, of segregation? Yeah, especially for a city like New York City, it's a kind of like one of the foundational, it's a foundational infrastructure of marginalizing public housing to certain, to edges, to places that are undesirable to live, that have toxic waste and, you know, are post-industrial places. And I think that, yes, health and housing, good housing, it can't be this nice to have. My only hope is that, that we understand when it comes to health and safety, like we're not we're not okay unless everybody is okay. And I think we have to shift our fundamental belief that everyone who lives in New York City deserves, deserves a place to live that's not going to threaten their lives, right? This isn't performative urbanism. Like people actually live here and are building their lives here, right? So until we fix that, then, then we can't design anything fair. Um, and until we have the right you know, the, the people in the room making decisions and with, with agency and having a voice, then what we design is always going to be broken, right? You, you, you're an advisor for Pono, which is described as New yeah. York City's only democratic outdoor educational program. Tell me more about that. Yeah, it's the school that my son goes to. It's actually not officially a school. It's an educational program. You know, Pono is amazing. I'll just say that. It's, it's based in Harlem. Pono is, it's, it's this very radical experiment um, founded by Mesa Basna, who's a, who has her PhD from Teachers College at Columbia. And she started the school for her daughter. And it's more, it's, it's more like a collective, like all the parents are, are very involved. And essentially, it's um, about trusting kids and their curiosity and their inherent um, interest for learning. And there's no curriculum the kids themselves decide. And I was, I was shocked. Like my son started there when he was four and I would see pictures of him in these meetings. Each kid was taking turns and talking about what they were interested in and they would decide together. The older students actually um, have a budget that they work with in terms of like who, what trips they're gonna take, what speakers they're gonna invite in. Um, but they're given an incredible amount of agency and responsibility in their education. And it's definitely, you know, helped him maintain the, like, the freedom that he has as an individual. Um, and it's actually very serendipitously been very helpful in this whole pandemic because it wasn't a huge shock for him. He's used to taking responsibility for his education and his time. And, you know, the kids are continuing to meet online. And, but they're, um, he's okay with it because he's always had a voice and a role in designing his learning. And so he knows that things don't just happen to him. 
he's a part of it and um, he's coming up with his own ideas and creative solutions through this time. And what a huge learning. I mean, one of the things obviously, especially in this time where so many people have lost their jobs, having yeah. that, that mindset or having the ability to reimagine how you can shift your reality and, and, yeah. and have the agency to, to, to take charge. And I mean, obviously it's, 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 it's not always possible when there's, you know, crisis and you still need to, in the short term, put food on the table, but yeah. even being able to have that hope to imagine how you can redesign your life, I think is, is invaluable to be able to, to learn that from, from a young age. Yeah. What, what gives you hope in this moment? I think the thing that gives me the most hope is that all the, the decades and centuries of injustice, like there's nowhere to hide anymore. I think it's all coming, it's all become very visible and evident. And there are things that we have to fix. The thing that gives me hope is this could be tremendously beneficial in terms of focusing and not being able to turn a blind eye to just the fact that most people on this planet do not have their basic needs met, let alone get to engage in any kind of like creative thinking or redesign, right? Mm-hmm. We have problems and they're, they're, we, have to, we, have to, we have to come together and solve them. And, and this is, if this is a, um, like a dress rehearsal for all the issues of climate change that are there to come, this is good. Like we can use this as a productive moment. Like we have to stop business as usual. And if it took this uh, pandemic for us to just to, to stop and to listen and to really take stock of the problems that we are seemingly intractable, right? Oh, they're just, it's, it's just not solvable. Well, we can solve them. We just don't want to. Um, and so we have to prioritize this ability to have basic health, basic freedom, basic housing. And I think that we can, we can make big change, but it has to be in a, at a scale that it's the human scale that makes sense. And maybe that's another way of tying in human-centered design, right? So when we have these sweeping initiatives, it misses nuances and, and, and leaves voices out. How can we um, continue to lead and, and create change from the, at the community level? You know, we have the technology to share community from community to community, what people are um, coming up with. So we need to harness that, right, and learn from each other. Bringing it back to the human dimension and, and certainly the, we've seen that a lot as well with, with neighborhood solutions and people going shopping for folks who can't go. And, yeah. and I, I think to, to your point, there, there has been a ton of initiatives and people have moved very quickly to make solutions yeah. available to people. So I think that's an, this very Without inspiring any model. Without mm-hmm. any policy exactly. change or buy-in or like, do we need to apply for a permit? Do we need to, what should we call it? What should it be called? Do we need a website? What, right. you know? <laughs> exactly. There's no time for that. So that's good. There's no time yeah. for that. We just have to help each other. Hopefully we will learn from this experience and, and find ways to be more resilient and, and more um, together. Yeah, more together with more humility. (laughs) Adriana Valdes-Young is an urban design researcher and strategist. She delivers insights, strategy, partnership to build people-centric products, spaces, and cities. She lives in New York City. I'm Isabel Swiderski and this is Design Influence.